reader, I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Matt Singer about Opposable Thumbs, how Siskel and Ebert change movies forever. Matt is the editor and film critic of ScreenCrush.com and a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. He won a Webby Award for his work on the independent film channel's website, ifc.com, and is the author of Marvel's Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two daughters. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome, Matt. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you because I loved Opposable Thumbs, and I have so many questions for you. Good. Well, hopefully I can answer some, if not all, of those (laughs) questions. That's what I'm here for. And you've been getting some great reviews. That has to make you happy. Yes. I mean, um, it it would have been... You know, I, I was it was interesting to see. I mean, obviously, I like the book and I'm very happy with what I wrote. But, uh, you know, uh, when your book is about very famous critics and uh, they're known for thumbs up and thumbs down, you do go, you know, I'm inviting, perhaps, if people do not like the book, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very easy thing to say if people don't like it. But so far, I've, I've been hearing some thumbs up uh, when people want to go that route, but haven't, uh, no, I haven't seen any thumbs down. So, and, and if people don't like it, that's okay too. I mean, uh, you know, part of writing about film critics and understanding th- this topic is that uh, people are not going to like everything. Uh, that kind of comes with the territory. It would not be becoming of me to be like, no, you can't not like this. That's, you know, that's, uh, no, absolutely not. You got to kind of know what you're getting into, especially as someone who also does write criticism. That would probably wouldn't be a good look if I was very upset about the occasional bad review, I guess. You'd go back and reevaluate all of the reviews you'd put out before. Uh, yeah, it would really make me reassess, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think it'll make a great gift for the holidays, too. It's nice that it's coming out in late October because it's going on my holiday gift list that I put out. And I just think I will recommend it to people as a great gift because this will really appeal to so many people, especially those that grew up watching them. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, definitely it was written in part for that audience, for the people that do remember Siskel and Ebert. 
and uh, have nostalgic memories, as I certainly do, of the show and of Gene and Roger and watching them and learning from them and all of that sort of thing. I would say, though, also, if you, you know, are less familiar, if maybe you've heard of them, but you haven't watched a lot of the show, you know, you you weren't of age to watch the show because now it's it's quite a few years ago at this point. I think it also I tried to make it a, a good primer for the show and for them and for film criticism in general. So, yeah, if you like Siskel and Ebert or you don't like Siskel and Ebert, it's really the perfect gift for everyone, I would say. You know, it, it covers all the bases. Is that am I selling it well enough? I hope <laughs> it's like you've got a very good pitch going here. <laughs> I hope that's I mean, I'm saying this with a somewhat tongue slightly in cheek, but, you know, I am personally a huge fan of Siskel and Ebert. I would not be doing what I do for a living without them. But part of what I loved about the show was that it really introduced me to film criticism, to the world of film at large, really. You know, uh, as a kid, obviously, I watched movies. I enjoyed movies. But just the stuff that I could see on TV, on cable, what was playing at the local multiplex, I was not like a six-year-old going, you know, mother, can we put on another Fellini film, please? That was not my existence. It, It was this show a few years later that really introduced me to those sorts of movies and thinking about movies critically. And so absolutely, I also wanted the book to hopefully be accessible to for someone like that, someone who is curious and wants to know more and wants to learn about the history of film criticism and the history of this show and how it it uh, changed film criticism and changed film culture as a whole. So, yeah, I really do hope that, um, you know, you can either be a casual fan or a hardcore fan and still enjoy the book. I think that's right. And it really goes even broader than that. You talk in one chapter about how they really revolutionized that type of talk show, which expanded into all sorts of other genres as well. That's right. Yes. I mean, there isn't, obviously, Siskel and Ebert isn't on the air anymore. And there really isn't, much to my my uh, dismay, there really isn't a, a comparable show about movies on you know TV anymore. But that format, which was so novel when it was introduced in the mid-1970s, is now so pervasive on cable television about sports, about politics. If anything, there's too many shows like it. And perhaps that's one reason why there isn't a Siskel and Ebert about movies that people are like, I get so much of people arguing on television. Why do I need more arguing on television? Perhaps that's one of the reasons. That's something that I talk about in the book and people have asked me about is like, why isn't there a show like this on the air anymore? And I think that's one of the potential causes is that they really kind of were trailblazers in that sense. And that model has really been kind of adopted by so many others that, you know, if you were less of a movie fan, but you loved hearing good debate and discussion on TV, at the time this was on, Siskel and Ebert was one of the few places to get it. Now, that's not the case. Now you can find that about lots of topics all over your your TV dial. That's exactly right. And before we keep chatting more about the book, let's back up a little bit. And will you give me a quick synopsis for those that haven't read it yet? And also just to kind of let everybody know exactly what it's about. Sure. So the book is about Siskel and Ebert, and it's about Siskel and Ebert. It's about the show, the history of the show, how it was made, how it came about, who created it, why it was so revolutionary and important and influential. And it's also about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, the guys, the people, the film critics, the journalists, how they got into the world of film criticism, where they came from, how their relationship started why they didn't get along at first and sort of over the course of doing the show, how their relationship evolved and grew and 
they were never the best of pals, uh, even uh, at the end of their uh, time working together. But they definitely grew a lot closer, came to really respect one another, even kind of came to love one another. So, yeah, it sort of follows them and it also follows the show and how the how the show changed and how the show changed the world around them. Hence the uh, the subtitle and its legacy that is still here today. That's right. Yes, exactly. Just like we were talking about some of the ways in which the show has kind of lived on, even though the show ended in its final incarnation in the early 2010s, sort of where we see its influence uh, today and its legacy today. Yes. And you talk about this either at the end of the book or in the acknowledgments. I cannot remember which, but where you can find it today. If people want to go back and watch it, particularly the people we're talking about that, that aren't familiar with them or never saw them, you know, grew up watching them, where would you find it? Where can you watch the show today, you mean? Yes. Well, there's a few places. I mean, certainly YouTube is the is the easiest place to kind of fall down a rabbit hole of of Siskel and Ebert clips. And one response I've gotten from people who've read the book early is, you know, I really liked the book and I loved it. It got me watching the show. I kind of fell down that YouTube rabbit hole of Siskel and Ebert clips, which to me, that's like a one of the best compliments because I love the show. I did as a kid. I still do now. And I one of the best parts of writing the book was giving myself permission to rewatch almost every episode ever made, certainly every one that I could find. And there's a lot of them on YouTube. There's also websites like siskelebert.org. That's just like a fan run site that is also an archive of many episodes, uh, some of which are not on YouTube, some of which are. Um, So that's another place you can go. And again, just watch hours upon hours of shows. That one is nice because it's sort of arranged chronologically. So if you, you know, if you want to do things that way and go systematically through the show, which is an intense experience, but can be a very illuminating one, um, you can kind of do that there. There isn't really a official online archive of the show. Um, that has every episode. I wish that there was. I would be the number one user of such a site if it existed. <laughs> um, and I know Roger Ebert's widow, Chaz Ebert, has talked about doing it. And I know she does have a lot of the tapes. And I, I hope she does someday do it. Because again, I would I would love to have that accessible uh, at my fingertips and also like just better versions of the show because the ones that are online, sometimes they're very good copies. And then other times these are the tapes that, you know, some dedicated fan made, you know, copied off of the 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 broadcast version. And thank goodness they did, because right now that's the only way to see some of them. But, um, you know, they're not always in the highest definition. We're not talking about 4K uh, high def uh, copies here. We're talking about, you know, uh, VHS tapes that were lying around somewhere for decades and have now been uploaded. So sometimes the picture quality might leave something to be desired. So to have, you know, the, uh, the official, you know, archives as good as they could possibly look, that would be fantastic. Since you had indicated it was a little harder to find some of their episodes and that there were several places to find them, obviously YouTube is a beginning point, but if siskelebert.org might be a better place for people, it's just nice to be able to go right there. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the history of the show is thankfully available online. So if you are curious and uh, whether you pick up the book or not, and you just want to watch the show, you can watch more than any sane person would ever want to watch of this show. I mean, uh, you, you don't have to watch hundreds of hours, but you could if you wanted to. You really can get a very good sense of of the whole history of the show from the very beginning up until 
1999. And, you know, in doing so, I do think you can really learn a lot about uh, film history and even broader pop culture from watching the show, because every week it's a pretty much almost every week of the year, they had a new episode, most of which were, you know, here's what's playing in theaters. Here's what's going on in the film world. Here's an issue we want to talk about. Here's some controversy that came up this week, you know, that the end of the episodes would often be, you know, they would talk about, uh, they had a segment called the revolving thumb for a while where they would uh, pontificate about whatever was going on in the news. Or sometimes they would do a whole episode dedicated to some hot topic in the world of movies like colorization or the PG-13 rating or whatever it might be. And so by really sampling, you can really get a pretty good sense of like, Here's what the movie world was like in 1978 or 1988 or 1998. And if you watch a lot of them, it's really interesting to watch the movie world evolve around the show. Well, you're obviously a very big fan. How did you decide to write this book? <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is great. I love when someone is so enthusiastic about something. And you are in a great way. You said it with just a hint of, a hint no. of, I would say, terror, fear, slight, <laughs> a slightly... Okay, so you like them. All right. You're a fan. I think it's great, actually. But how did you decide to write the book? So, I mean, as you said, I am a fan (laughs) from way back. And it really is the reason that I uh, do what I do. Certainly, there's, you know, other things along the way that happened that I was fortunate. People I met, you know, uh, influential people in my life. But the start of it really was the show. I was, like I said, I was not... The uh, kid at age six who was, you know, dragging my parents to uh, the art house cinema, not that there was one where I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey, but, you know, I liked going to the movies, but it, w- I, I, you know, like any other person, it really was the show that I discovered, you know, a couple years after that, when I was like middle school aged, that I really sort of became obsessed with the show and with movies. And so you know, as a fan, I always just would have wanted to read this book. It seemed to me like a, a subject that should have a book. And at a certain point, and I've, I'd written a couple of books and it was like, you know, if uh, looking around and going, well, if I want to read it, I may have to write it. And if, uh, if someone's going to write it, it might as well be me. I, I, I'm pretty sure this story is in the acknowledgments of the book, but it is true. Um, when I was sort of searching for a topic for my uh, next book, I had a list and I had to, was supposed to present it to my literary agent and I, I showed it to my wife and Siskel and Ebert actually wasn't on the list at first. And she was the one who said to me, why isn't it here? Because she's lived with me for decades and knows I'm a fan, as we put it. So <laughs> she also had that same sort of vibe and was like, how could you not have it as at least an option? And the thing that I said to her was, um, you know, we're talking about this show that means this much to me. And it's also a show that was about writers who mean a lot to me and I look up to tremendously and think we're uh, so great at what they did. And it just felt like I would be intimidated to be compared to their writing uh, and their work. And that just seemed like a lot in my mind. And she, thankfully, uh, to her credit, uh, was the one who was like, first of all, you can do it. You you are a fan. You definitely have the knowledge base to start this sort of project. And also said, you know, if if anyone else did it, you would be upset that you weren't the one to do it. And I agreed with her that I am that petty and small and that I should <laughs> do it. And so it wound up on the list and it was the topic. And, and there you have it. That's that's how it, uh, it came about. So, But it, it certainly 
while I was hesitant, it wasn't because I didn't want to do it. It was more that I wanted to do it so much that I didn't want to screw it up. You know what I mean? It felt like a, a very a big job to me because the show means so much to me. And Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were such huge inspirations for me that I don't know, I was a little I was a little intimidated at first, especially. A bit of a daunting challenge. Yeah, I mean, I would think, I mean, uh, writing about writers, uh, you know, that uh, maybe this is my own neuroses and my own uh, inferiority complex or whatever. But I, you know, I just that I don't I uh, was worried I wouldn't pull it off. So now at the benefit of hindsight, obviously, uh, that was the right call. My wife, Melissa, she was right. And this is why I like to give her credit, because she loves to hear, as she should, that she was right. Why wouldn't she want to hear (laughs) that? Exactly. That's the best thing for a wife to hear. You were right. Yes. Yes. So I and I that's why, you know, that's that's why she's so great is that she believed in me when I maybe necessarily did did not so much. So, yeah. And I am really happy with how it came out. And. Yeah, I, I'm now that it's here and there's a physical book, it's it's really exciting. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, people are getting to see it now. You should be. It really turned out so fabulously. And I just... Hey, that's what I was fishing for. Thank you. Thank you. You got <laughs> yes. me. That was what so, I was... Well, it was okay. No, I'm just kidding. I loved it. I mean, literally from the first page when I started reading, I was like, oh, this is a really wonderful book. And I think you're right. It took me back because I used to watch them and I love films and I love going to the movies and all of that. But I also think that it just speaks to a much larger, you know, they, they have such a legacy. And I think that you got that point across too. Plus, I didn't know all that much about how they met and how they got started. And so I thought all that was just completely fascinating. Yeah. And another reason why it was daunting to me, and hopefully this comes across in the book, was, you know, there's sort of two big sides to the story. Is like, on the one hand, if you do know Siskel and Ebert, you know, they famously you know, they argumentative and combative and they had this great competition and rivalry and, and on the show that came across. And like part of the joy of the show was watching them argue and debate and all that sort of thing. So obviously I wanted to have the book capture that, capture the rivalry. You know, there's very famous stories that are in the book about them competing and fighting and pranking one another. And they were, again, so hyper competitive. Everything had to be equal in their minds and they always wanted to win. And so I needed all that to be in there, but I didn't just want it to be like a dishy sort of like, can you believe these guys kind of thing? I also, again, because the show means so much to me personally, and I do think it was a really important show, I did want to capture that in the book too. And so there's, you know, the the, the book kind of alternates between chapters that are sort of like the behind the scenes stuff, the backstage stuff with chapters about how they did the show, how they made reviews, you know, famous reviews that really get into what makes the show interesting as a viewer, as a critic. Now, looking now that I'm looking back at it now and finding the ways that they argue, the arguments they make, the ways that they make it about more than just, oh, this is a good movie or this is a bad movie. You know, the, 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 the conversations are very rarely that superficial. It's more about, you know, sometimes they review a movie and it gets two thumbs up. And they disagree about why it's thumbs up. You know what I mean? They, they could argue or debate the reasons why a movie was good. And so that is really interesting to me, again, as a film critic. And so, yeah, I really tried to kind of balance those two things. I wanted it to really capture the, the, the stories, the Gene and Roger, the Siskel and Ebert stories and the making of the show and how it came about and the nuts and bolts. But I really tried to also like make this a book about 
uh, film and film criticism. And there's an appendix of, of movies that are kind of a little more obscure now that they loved. And things like that were very much done, hopefully, to uh, you know make this book that's about film critics have some film criticism in it. That was very important that I at least try to, to get that in there to me. I get that. And the thing that really made me laugh so hard was you talk about the rivalry and even the little petty things. And I don't want to spoil stuff because I want people to be able to enjoy it as they read. But the little silly things they would argue about who would sit where and, and different things like that. It was very engaging. But you made it seem funny, not petty. I mean, you know, at times it was a little petty for them, but it, it factored into <laughs> their story so well that it just made it funny. It was definitely petty sometimes. I don't <laughs> think that's uh, unfair to say. But I, I think if I'm glad it it came off as fun. And I, what I was trying to do was capture the tone in which the people that worked with them tell these stories. The people that worked on the various iterations of the show, they really kind of delight when they tell you these stories because they're great stories. These guys were such characters and they were so unique and they did have this unbelievable rivalry and competition. And they did this stuff that you know, I don't know if all of it would fly today, uh, you know, in terms <laughs> sure. of the way the way that they would prank and needle each other. And it it is sort of, uh, it, you know, I don't know if I would have been so amused if I was, you know, holding a boom mic or sitting behind a camera on the set and having to uh, endure their fighting. But uh, the people who are telling these stories, they look back on the show very fondly. They look back on Gene and Roger very fondly and they you know, they told these stories with a lot of love. And so I tried to, you know, kind of capture uh, that spirit in the way that I told them in the book. That's exactly what I'm getting at, that they were beloved. They were not bad people that people were like, oh, I can't believe I had to work for these people. I'm sure periodically they were frustrated because they did argue a lot. But I think they look back with fondness. And that is so important, I think. Yeah, I mean, if if I had interviewed people and they said they were they were nightmare bosses, you know what I mean? I would right. I would have said that. That's not what people said. They said, "Yes, they could be difficult sometimes. Yes, they fought, but they were, you know, they were so passionate about movies and what they were doing. And it seems like it was a very infectious energy of passion and enthusiasm about film that was kind of pervasive all across the different versions of the show. And you talk to the, to uh, the people that worked on it. And that's what comes through is that, yes, I, t because the show, you know, in the very beginning, especially when they were showing clips from these movies, they had to make the clips themselves. These weren't provided by the studios. They weren't on electronic press kits or anything like that. They would take the prints of the movies from press screenings or film or even the theaters that were showing these movies. They would take physical film reels and bring them to a, a, a transfer station, a dubbing place, whatever they would do and copy them. And you're interviewing these producers who worked on the show and they're talking about trudging through the snow in minus 22 degree weather to schlep these film cans to make these clips. But they're not saying it like this was the worst experience of their lives. They're talking about it like this was something special that I got to be a part of. And so that is hopefully what is kind of communicated in the book is that the show was made with a lot of enthusiasm and love not always between the hosts for each other, but maybe for everyone else and for the subject of movies. And so if that comes across in the book, that's great because that's how the show was being made. It definitely comes across. And I thought that film clip story or stories was absolutely unimaginable because you think today <laughs> it's so easy to pull that stuff and you can't even imagine that they had to go back and literally get the movies from AMC or from the producer or even occasionally from the director. That's right. Yeah. And for sure, you know, 
the number one thing I hear about from journalists, from interviewers who, you know, deal with publicity people these days. Now, this is the number one thing that they want to talk about, that their minds are boggled by, because it is so different than the world uh, now. And I, you know, I work writing about film. That's my day job. So I can speak to that personally as well. Like, the film studios, their job, and it is their job. I'm not saying this, you know, to be insulting, like that their job is to get the best possible coverage for their products. And that the way they do that is control what is seen and what is said as best that they can. And that includes, yeah, like the clips, the, the trailers. And yes, it's easy to watch things nowadays on YouTube, on our phones, even. It's a totally different world in that sense. But what we see is totally controlled by the studios. It's the clips they want to show, the trailers they want to show, the things that they think will make a movie look as good as possible. Because again, that's what the, that's what they're here to do. They want you to buy a ticket. And the uh, Siskel and Ebert, or as it you know at the time it was called sneak previews, like the show at, in the mid seventies to the early eighties, especially like that electronic press kit and here are the clips you're allowed that kind of didn't exist at the time and they were able to yeah make their own clips which was a huge selling point of the show at the time because they had clips that you couldn't see anywhere else and again this is pre forget about youtube this is forget about pre-internet this is pre-personal computer you know what i mean like it's a totally different universe and so not only were you getting to see these things that you maybe couldn't see otherwise they were using the the clips in really smart ways because it wasn't just, you know, they weren't just getting on the show and saying, well, I really thought that Jaws had excellent uh, cinematography. They could say, I think Jaws has amazing cinematography in this scene. Watch this scene. Look at how Spielberg uses the camera to create a sense of menace by placing the camera under in a point of view shot as if you are the shark or something like that. You know what I mean? And then they could cut to the clip which a print film critic, no matter how great they are, and I love print film criticism. I'm not saying this to insult that, but you can't do that in print. Maybe now you can kind of do it online if you intersperse clips. But this is where that kind of comes from, is that these guys were kind of innovative in that sense, in that their show was able to use the medium of television as a way to do really exciting things with film criticism. You know, not just we're showing you these clips, you can't see anything else anywhere else. We're using these clips as a way to really illustrate our points and talk about these movies in a serious or sometimes amusing way. And I think, yeah, it was a huge part of the show and totally different than the world we live in now. Well, and totally different than the world they lived in at the time. I mean, they were the first people to do this type of thing. Yeah, they were. Oh, for sure. I mean, there were film critics on television before. Right. Uh, sneak previews. But it was, you know, one person sitting at a desk at the, you know, either maybe on the Today Show show or the local, you know, New York nightly news or something and saying, here is a film and this is what I thought of it. And it's opening on Friday and it's playing at this theater. And, you know, back to you, Joe. It was not what Siskel and Ebert became, which was uh, a conversation, a debate, an argument that was another huge kind of innovation that the show brought both to to film criticism, but also to kind of, you know, like TV in general, because, yeah, it wasn't as easy to find people talking honestly about anything uh, on TV at the time. It wasn't, you know, that sort of, of world. And they were one of the first shows to really do that. 
And I, again, think that was a, a huge part of the appeal is that these guys are on TV. They're talking about the movies and they're and they're not just saying, go see this, go see that, go see everything. They're giving you their bluntly, sometimes brutally honest opinion about it. And that's to this day, that's still refreshing. I mean, it. Maybe it's even harder. It's hard to see again on television, at least about movies, is like honest, frank, personal opinions. You know, um, I don't. Maybe there's not that much talk at all about movies on TV anymore, which is unfortunate. But yeah, that was certainly something that distinguished them throughout their history. Was you know, you could agree with what they said, you could disagree. You may not always think they, you know, saw the movie the right way. How dare they give two thumbs down to this movie, which I love. But you always felt like they believed it. You never felt like they were saying it to impress someone or to make a studio happy. You always believed they 100% believed what they were saying, and it was their genuine, authentic opinion. Well, and that circles back to getting the press clips, because you talk a little bit about this in the book, but they weren't always positive. So when they're going and asking for clips from the film that are different than the ones that have been released by the studio... I'm sure there was some anxiety on the parts of these producers or directors to release it. Like, I hope they're going to say good things and not be making fun of this. Oh, I'm, oh, absolutely. And, you know, eventually the, the practice of these, you know, putting out these electronic press kits and, and sending sort of uniform clips to everyone became industry-wide practice. And, you know, by the end of or the later years of the show, certainly it was less about the show making its own clips and and uh, they were kind of using more what was made available to them by the studios but you know the, the great thing about Siskel and Ebert was they they had a knack for you know if they didn't like the clips they could tell you that too you know they they could wield these things like weapons if they wanted to you know like they could have a review and they would say well we wanted to show you how bad the monster in this movie looks but they won't give us any clips of the monster and they said they won't let us show them on TV so think about that, audience, as you're at home thinking, if they won't show me what it looks like, how bad must it be? You know what I mean? If they <laughs> right, were proud of sure. it, they would let us show it. And so they would say things like that. And they would, you know, they would use a lack, they could even use a lack of clips about a movie to their advantage and use that to make their argument for them as well. No, for sure. Well, what surprised you the most when writing this one? Well, I mean, there were certain stories I didn't know that were certainly surprising. I think a lot of the surprises came for me in rewatching so many episodes and I watched, hun- I, you know, I, I should I should have figured out how many the exact number is. It's hundreds, it's thousands of episodes from across the 20 plus years. And for me, I think the most surprising thing was, sure, there are the movies that we all think of from this time period, the mid 70s to the late 90s, that are the classics. And some of those movies absolutely were classics. They weren't classics because of Siskel and Ebert, but they absolutely were sort of helped, given a boost by Siskel and Ebert and were championed by them and, you know, found audiences in part because of their very positive, very enthusiastic reviews. But what really surprised me was how often I would put on a, a random episode and go, okay, I've heard of this movie. I've seen this movie a million times. I know this one. I've never heard of this movie in my entire life. And it wouldn't just be the obscure movies that are bad. Like, okay, of course, I don't know this terrible movie that they said was a mess and not worth watching. There would be movies that they loved, would give two thumbs up, maybe even put on, you know, lists of, uh, you know, they would do special episodes where they would re-recommend movies that were maybe now on video or Laserdisc or DVD that people might have missed when they were in theaters, you know, buried treasures, they sometimes called these shows. 
And I was very surprised how many of those sorts of movies I, you know, not only had not seen, but never even heard of, which was sort of the impetus behind the appendix in the book, which is a list of 25 movies that they, Siskel and Ebert, really liked, championed on the show, but that for one reason or another have not become the masterpieces of that period. They're not uh, Hoop Dreams or My Dinner with Andre or one of those types of movies that they were, you know, they really loved and helped get the word out about. And they're all, you know, like I was watching these episodes going, I've never heard of this movie. And then I would track it down and go, this is a terrific movie. And that's sort of the impetus behind that part of the book is I wanted to, you know, celebrate these movies and the the sort of the ethos of Siskel and Ebert of encouraging people to see things that they might not otherwise see. And that was how that that appendix of 25 buried treasures came about is that I was just watching these things and kept being surprised by all of these wonderful movies that had fallen through the cracks. And so I really hope that if people check out the book, they they go to the appendix and maybe watch some of those movies. That would be fantastic. I haven't had a chance to pour over that yet before this interview, but I can't wait to because we always get stuck. Like, what movie should we watch? And we end up watching something that isn't very good or something we've seen before. So now I have a good list. Yeah, you got that's 25 movies. Siskel and Ebert approved, and the, and I watched them all. It wasn't just like I took their opinions at face value. The mo- the movies that are in there are all ones that I watched and thought were really great. So um, yes, they really are. There's and and they run the gamut. There's there's foreign films. There's you know there's a couple of bigger studio movies in there. There's also some tiny tiny movies in there. So hopefully. Yeah, if people check out the book, I, I do encourage you to to when you're done or at any point, you know, like I was a big fan, not just of Siskel and Ebert the show, but you know, I had the Ebert video guides, the Malton video guides, and I used to love those books. And I would just sometimes I would just pick one up and randomly rifle through them and see like what's something I've never seen that they love. Oh, here's something that got four stars that I've never heard of. I should go the next time I go to blockbuster or whatever, (laughs) I should rent this movie if they have a copy of it, which, you know, that was a whole other struggle. So, uh, you know, the, the, that part of the book was sort of my attempt to kind of honor the spirit of those sorts of books as well is to get a little of that vibe. So yeah, it's the kind of thing you could hopefully just kind of pick up, open the book to and, and see, okay, well, what's this movie? Can I watch this? Is this streaming anywhere? Can I rent it anywhere? And hopefully, yeah, people will check out some stuff that way. And it's certainly easier to get our hands on that type of stuff today than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. In most cases, yes. Some of those movies actually can be a little hard to track down. You might have to do a little detective work. You might have to go to even on eBay and get a, you know, there was one of the movies in there. Um, I think it was Monsieur Here, which is this sort of French thriller, sort of a voyeuristic thriller about a man looking out his window and spying on his neighbors. A really good movie that... uh, at the time that I was doing that part of the book, really wanted to watch it. I could not find it streaming anywhere, but I found a, a used copy on uh, eBay for like $4 and bought it. So you might have to get creative, but they are <laughs> they are out there and they're, they're worth tracking down. I wouldn't have anything to play it on if I did track it down. Oh, no. Yeah. So I, that would be a little more difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, well, I've tracked it down now, but... <laughs> You could probably get a DVD player for $4 on eBay at this point, too. So you just keep your options open. You know, you never know. Very good point. Very good point. Well, before we wrap up, what books have you read recently that you really liked? The book that I'm reading right now, so I haven't finished it, but I'm in the middle of, is movie-related. I recently saw Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Martin Scorsese film. 
and I had I had not read the book, and I I loved the movie. I thought the movie was incredible, and it feels it's an enormous, epic, sweeping movie. But I'd I'd had colleagues who say actually the book and the film are different, not in the sense that they're you know it's not faithful to the book, but that the book I guess is you know sort of more about the FBI side of that story, and the film is really not. It's much more about the the crimes and the people. Uh, the survivors of these horrible crimes that are sort of witnesses to all of these terrible things, or spoiler alert, maybe some of the perpetrators of these horrible things as well. And so I was really curious to read the book and see what, you know, I'm often interested in adaptations, but sort of curious to see like, what was the original book here? And how did they choose what to adapt and what not to adapt? And I'm about 50 pages in right now and really enjoying it. And, you know, I'm recognizing a lot of the material from the film, but there's also details that aren't. And so I I always get a kick out of out of that sort of thing. That's what I'm currently currently reading. And the film weighs in at like three and a half hours, right? Yes. It's no, yeah, it's a it's a long one. It is about three and a half hours. It's and that's also sort of what I was so interested in was when people would say, you know, it's because you hear three and a half hours, you think, well, they must have adapted every line of dialogue from this book. You know, it must be almost a transcript. But, uh, you know, from what colleagues who had read the book told me, it wasn't. And so that made me uh, more interested. Besides the fact that it's just this incredible, shocking, fascinating, upsetting story that you you want to know even more about. Uh, it's the kind of thing where you walk out of the movie saying, that was an incredible experience, but I don't feel like I've reached the bottom of this topic even, and I I want to know more. and. Uh, again, so far the book uh, is is really fabulous. I wish I had uh, I wish I had more time to uh, to just sit and, and read it. To be honest with you, but um, you know I, that's that's what I keep in my bag. I always have a book in my bag on the subway. Anytime I'm on the subway, that's what I'm looking at is a, is a book. Used to be something I saw everyone doing. Now I feel like I'm the only person on the subway who still has a physical book in their hands. But uh, that's that's what's in my 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 bag right now, and that's what I've been reading on the on the subway. I have that one on my bookshelf and I need to get to it. It just sounds like it's such a sad story, but I know it's a very important one. And I'll tell you, I am almost always a proponent of reading the book and then watching the movie. But recently I watched Silo on Apple TV Plus. Have you watched that? No, not yet. And it's based on a book series, but I didn't know that. So I watched Silo first and then I have gone back and I'm reading the series. And it actually worked really well for similar things to what you're discussing. They adapted the book, but they also added some different things and interpreted things differently. So it's been interesting to compare them. Yeah. I mean, the, we could probably talk for a whole podcast just about this subject, but it oh, it is a good, it is an interesting question. Like, is it better to see the movie or TV show and then read the book? Or is it better to do the opposite? And I can see it both ways. Um, sometimes I want to read it and then I, I want to see how they adapt it. Sometimes I would rather see the movie and be surprised by the movie and then go back and, you know, get the, get the, the more comprehensive version or to see what was cut out or to see what was accurate and what was not. I, I, I don't know. Sometimes because of just my job, I feel like maybe it's better to see the movie first because you, you know, it almost, you know, reading a book, you, you get your own images in your mind and you, you know, you think you, you paint the pictures already. And so sometimes maybe the movie doesn't line up with that. And um, maybe that's not fair to the movie in some ways. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. Like I said, we could probably do an entire podcast just talking about that. Like what's the appropriate or best way to do that? 
And maybe there isn't a best way. Maybe it's just personal preference or sometimes it's unavoidable. They make a movie. You've already read the book even before you, you know, you were just interested in the book. But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like generally I maybe tend to enjoy the film more if I haven't read the book and don't compare it. You can hear in my voice. I'm like, I don't even know as I'm saying these words. But I'm I think sure. you touched on it. Like you're a film critic. I'm a book reviewer. So for me, I always want to read the book first. I want sure. to have in my mind what they look like. I don't want Matt Damon in my head as the character he plays in this book. You know, like I, that's the beauty to me of reading, but I can totally get your side of it. As a film critic, you need to see the movie fresh. So not reading the book first probably makes perfect sense for you. Right. And that's a good point. Like on the flip side, yeah, you're right. Sometimes when I'm reading Killers of the Flower Moon, I'm thinking about DiCaprio as, you know, Ernest when Ernest was Ernest. He wasn't DiCaprio. That's the actor in this film. So that's a that's a very a fair and good point that, yes, sometimes, you know, you see the movie first and it does kind of uh, cloud your perceptions of the book. It's uh, in some ways, maybe it's a little unavoidable that that happens. So, yeah, it's a complicated and interesting subject. It would have made a great subject. I don't think Gene and Roger ever did an episode about this. I'm trying to think if they did. But I would have loved to have seen uh, an episode of Siskel and Ebert on this very subject. I don't think they ever did it. That would have been interesting. And you're making me think I need to do a podcast episode on that. Because you're right. (laughs) We could talk about it forever. So great idea. Thank you. Well, Matt, this was delightful. And I loved your book. And I'm so glad we got to talk so much about it. And I can't wait for everybody else to get to read it. Thanks for taking the time to come on my show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, uh, fun discussing all of these issues. And yeah, now I'm going to have to go back and look at my notes. And I don't think they ever did that episode, but I'm going (laughs) to have to just go double check now. You'll have to let me know. Now I'm very curious. Yes, I'll let you know. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. 
We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.